Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. 15 odd years ago, I went to the bank manager and said, look, you know, we are in this position. Hospital is very supportive, but 10 is going to become 20. And <laughs> if uh, we do this, uh, it's not going to work a long time. So I need to buy a warehouse to put these freezers. So... Um, I had identified a warehouse where I think we could have put these freezers. So he said, how much is it? I said, it's a million pounds. And he said, how much money do you need? I said, I need a million pounds. (laughs) Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. The show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. If you are listening to this and you are of South Asian descent, this episode might be a bit of an uncomfortable listen because what we're chatting about today is why, despite the advances in medicine, people of South Asian origin are twice as likely to suffer from cardiovascular disease, three times as likely to have diabetes, as well as many other related diseases that you can think of, including cancer and dementia. And I know the title of this pod is why South Asians are at worst risk, but the honest answer is we still don't have a good idea. And this is why if you are between the ages of 18 and 85 and of South Asian heritage, look at the description in the podcast show notes on your pod player right now. There is a link right at the top of this episode for the biobank study at sabiobank.org. That's S-A-B-I-O bank.org. Click on the link, stop listening to this pod for about five minutes and book an appointment immediately. You'll get a free full health assessment, including bloods, lipid assessment, body composition, retinal photography, plus a full breakdown on your risks and advice on where you need to get your numbers. 
your data is completely anonymized and you'll be contributing to a major worldwide resource for medical researchers for decades to come who can finally answer these important questions that explain the disparity in health between South Asians and others. Now, I've done a bunch of these well-being assessments in the past myself because as someone who is interested in nutritional medicine, preventative health, and someone from South Asian descent, I know my risk is much higher than my colleagues and my risk is further multiplied by the fact that I have had cardiac arrhythmia. Thankfully, that has resolved, but my history alone puts me at further risk, which is why I need to be really hot on prevention. And trust me, these assessments cost hundreds of pounds each, if not thousands, but the trial will give you the assessment absolutely free and you'll be contributing to the most most ambitious research study of a generation which could generate personalized medicine recommendations for a quarter of the world's population who are largely underrepresented in current research. We've talked about underrepresentation in research in previous podcast episodes as well. My guest today is Professor Jaspal Kuna, who is leading the South Asia Biobank study. Professor Kuna is one of the leading cardiologists in the country with over 30 years experience in the treatment of general cardiovascular disorders. He is a consultant at Imperial College Healthcare Trust and an active researcher who has pioneered some major discoveries and published numerous times in journals such as Nature, including research revealing novel genetic variants that underlie coronary heart disease, type 2 diabetes, obesity, and other highly prevalent disorders. I think this podcast is going to be a real inspiration, particularly for young medics out there or people just thinking about medicine because Prof shares his stories of upbringing in Nairobi and his move to Kent in England, plus his journey to medicine, through medicine, his thoughts on medical education today when he first learnt of the disparity between health in certain populations as well as how he navigated the system. I really hope by the end of the podcast you realise the graft it has taken to get here. There are some absolutely amazing stories, including about how he sold the vision for this study and others preceding it through sheer determination, asking a bank manager for a million pounds when he had no money himself and having to store research freezers in hospital corridors all become clear when you listen to the pod. And remember, they're looking to recruit over 200,000 people of South Asian origin for this study and I've already contributed and if you're of South Asian background please just go check it out sabiobank.org it was a pleasure to sit down with him for about an hour and a half I honestly could have chatted for longer but for now please do enjoy my conversation with Professor Jaspal Singh Guna. I want to start by talking a bit about your career, okay? So most people will know you as one of the most eminent cardiologists in the country. You've been published in multiple journals. You know, you've got incredible academic colleagues and you've had uh, papers in, in nature and, you know, everyone sees that side of things. That's the, that's the stuff that people can find online. What we can't find about uh, find out about is a bit about you as a person, your, your clinical career. So, so tell us, First of all, where did you where did you grow up? So uh, I was uh, born in Nairobi in Kenya, 
Um, and uh, we arrived at the time of the big rush in the 1960s. Uh, I was around 10 at the time. So we found ourselves in Gillingham in Kent. And that's where I grew up. I went to school in Gillingham in Kent. Um, so I went to Gillingham, ultimately Gillingham Grammar School, uh, which was a great, <laughs> great school to be in. And um, so, yeah, having done my O-levels, A-levels and so on, then I progressed on to medicine at St. Thomas's. Amazing. Amazing. I did not know that, that you yeah. grew up in Nairobi. And so when, when you came over here, it must have been a very different environment. I mean, how, how did you how did you fit in? I mean, you, you're clearly Sikh, you have a turban. What, what, was that an easy transition for you? Or? Um, it, it wasn't easy in those days. Uh, so Gillingham had a population of about 100,000 people. Uh, <laughs> there were, I think, no more than five Asian families. Uh, we were the only turban Sikhs, uh, my brother and I, in our uh, school. Uh, so, you know, we, we confronted a mixture of uh, curiosity, intrigue, mm. uh, periodic bullying, as one might expect. Uh, but actually, on the whole, I think, you know, it, it was incredible how well we were embraced uh, at all walks of life. You know, if you imagine that scenario in the 1960s and everything that went on at that time, we, we felt so incredibly lucky to be in an mm. environment where we were, you know, nurtured, uh, our, our kind of uh, our appearance was appreciated, uh, you know, our hard work in various areas was appreciated, uh, our, our um, uh, you know, sporting prowess was uh, mm. appreciated. So I played a lot of hockey. Uh, oh. And uh, so that gave me a kind of a, a bit of an edge at school and uh, allowed that level of integration actually with my uh, with my friends yeah i i, I find um sport is a fantastic connector as, as well as food and other attributes but but sport I, I find is something that really rallies people uh together across different cultures and i think if you can have a shared interest in something like that it, it definitely breaks down barriers I think definitely, and more so at school, mm. uh, because, uh, you know, academia at schools is, is uh, not necessarily the priority and certainly wasn't the priority in those days. Mm. And uh, the schools like to have good teams. Uh, and, you know, if you went around with your friends, uh, that was one area where you could actually find a great deal of commonality. And if you had something to contribute, uh, then that was, uh, you know, a positive thing, a positive to develop those friendships. Mm, yeah. And were, you, were your parents in medicine as well? Was that, is that no, something that... No, not at all. Yeah. I think my father uh, went out to Kenya from India in his teens. Uh, he, uh, I think, may even have been 16 or 17. He presented to be 21. He joined the British Army in Kenya. Oh, wow. And uh, soon after the war, he then uh, joined the East African Railways. So he, he actually worked in the East African Railways. And oh, wow. my mother, she was a housewife uh, in Kenya. So when uh, we came across her in the 1960s, uh, he uh, went and worked uh, in the local factory for 15 years while mm -hmm. he was here. And my mother 
uh, became a seamstress. That's what she did at home in Nairobi. So she uh, joined a women's factory as a seamstress. And they, you know, like uh, our parents, uh, put an incredible amount of effort uh, into uh, educating us, looking after us. So medicine um, is this generation. My mother comes from a family of uh, people in the armed forces. My father comes from a family of uh, farmers. Um, mm. They found themselves uh, uh, doing kind of factory work while they were here. And uh, it just so happens that in this generation, I mean, you know, I obviously went to medicine at St. Thomas's. Um, I have two brothers. They went uh, to university college to do dentistry. Uh, and my sister went into teaching biology. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, as we look at the next generation coming on, I got, I think we've got about 13, 14 doctors and 12, 13 dentists in the next generation. The family is just mushroomed into a kind of medical family from, yeah. um, from you know, my father's generation, which was nothing to do with medicine. Wow. Wow. Single-handedly, the family is uh, populating all the uh, staff needed in the NHS. <laughs> well, you know, I think uh, you, you, see it's cha- you see the challenges of the NHS from different dimensions. Uh, I mean, I see it from my angle. My wife is a GP, uh, so I see it from the GP angle, and the kids are training. Uh, and so I see it from the junior doctor's angle, you know, from a window of a family as a multiple, uh, you know, junior colleagues, which I've worked, had the pleasure of working with over many years. So Mm. it gives you a different perspective and different pressures um, in the NHS and family life. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And and so, I mean, it seems like um, everyone, uh, including your siblings, were were interested in science at a very early age. Where, where Where do you think that fascination for science came from? if it wasn't from your, your parents? Uh, I think because uh, personally, I, I was just so bad at arts. Uh, <laughs> and so you, you gravitated you gravitated to something that you could do. And uh, initially it was maths and science. And uh, so, you know, you start working at things where you're good at and then, uh, you know, took on science subjects at school. Uh, that's how it happened. Mm, amazing. So, so walk us uh, through your career a bit because um, it's, you went to St Thomas's. What what was it like after you graduated, um, and and how did you decide to follow your career, which eventually led you to uh, both academia but also with the specialty in cardiology? So, uh, St Thomas's. When I joined St Thomas's, uh, you know, again like Gillingham in Kent, uh, I was one of two, three Asians in St. Thomas. Mm. St. Thomas was a small medical school. Uh, we had 60 graduates uh, uh, in our in our year, which is a far cry from what you see of hundreds of yeah. uh, you know, graduates in each year medical school. Uh, so it was very, very uh, kind of a cozy environment. Everyone knew everyone. Working your way through a medical degree, and the incredible thing about uh, training in those days was mentorship. Um, we had incredible physicians and surgeons at St. Thomas's um, mm. in a way that even now, looking back, uh, 
I find it difficult to find those kind of role models uh, in this day and age to what we had in those days. Mm. That mentorship um, uh, was crucial. You saw people, you know, at a delivering at a very high level, and that was inspirational. So we had, uh, you know, very good cardiac uh, physicians, cardiologists who were innovating at the time, and that sort of drew me to a specialty in my undergraduate year. And I did a house job at St. Thomas. My first house job was in cardiac surgery, actually, uh, working with two cardiac surgeons and um, a chap called Mark Bainbridge and Bryn Williams. And uh, Mark was an incredible teacher in addition to a good surgeon. And, uh, you know, these guys used to do three or four cases in a day. Uh, and bypass operations in a day. Now, I have to tell you, today, mm. if a surgeon does four in a week, he's considered to be a busy surgeon. Uh, okay, so that's 2021. Mm. In those days, mm. he and Bryn Williams used to do four cases a day. Wow. And uh, there was the two of them. There was a senior registrar, a registrar, and myself as a houseman. So I was, uh, as a houseman, had to look after all the patients in the ward because you know, they were so busy operating. And when I'd done the wards, I was called into a theatre and my job was actually to come and take the vein out, uh, to harvest the vein so that I could hand over the vein for the bypass uh, and then they would get on and do the bypass and I would end up closing the leg. Mm. And, you know, uh, in those days, uh, you know, uh, I was the first one to start and I was the last one to finish. And uh, that's, 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 uh, that's how it went. So uh, I enjoyed that job. I enjoyed that job because it gave me an insight into cardiovascular medicine. And then I joined uh, the ITU at St. Thomas's, which was also a very, very high-powered unit, uh, Mead Ward, it was called. And we had an incredible ITU uh, kind of a position. Um, and uh, these guys used, didn't used to write many papers, but they used to write monographs and books. And monographs mm. and books were actually world famous because of it had distilled down their experience uh, in terms of managing patients at a very high, high level. So that's where I kind of was drawn into cardiovascular medicine. And uh, I felt that if I had the opportunity, that's what I'd like to be able to do. Now, mm. you know, so... Uh, and of course, in those days, uh, you didn't have uh, the kind of uh, the structured environment that we see nowadays in the training. Uh, you know, there were no QR codes. You couldn't punch in a QR code and go off and do your training program and emerge six years later as a gastroenterologist or something. So you had to do you had to do the groundwork yourself. So you went into the BMJ adverts and you applied to. Uh, work in centers which you felt were going to be good for you. And more importantly, actually, you hunted down people in the country who you thought mm. uh, you would like to be able to work through and would give you that mentorship uh, and the inspiration to continue. So uh, having done my house job uh, at St. Thomas, I went to Worthing to do my second house job in Worthing with another incredibly good physician, uh, David McRyan. And then I came back to uh, 
Guys, uh, I did some jobs at Guys, worked on the renal unit at Guys, uh, again with three incredible renal physicians. And um, then I went off to Blackpool to do a job in Blackpool. And that was very interesting because it wasn't the done thing. You know, uh, if you wanted to have a career in medicine, you stuck to the top end centers. And uh, there was this kind of golden circuit in those. Yeah. The golden circuit was uh, a mead job at St. Thomas's, the renal unit at Guy's, Queen Square for neurology. Mm-hmm. And you did a job at Hammersmith and then you could go on your happy career. That was the golden routine in those days. That was the kind of training program, if you see what I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what, what led you to Blackpool? Because that, that sticks out <laughs> quite a bit. Yeah, it surprised, uh, it surprised my colleagues. Uh, actually, uh, at some level, it was an opportunity because uh, I felt I wanted to see what happened in the district. And this then hmm. shaped, actually, also what I went on to do later. Uh, it was good to be in the centres, uh, but you know, uh, to be out where uh, uh, you could do some real medicine uh, and do more practically, that's what mm-hmm. led me to Blackpool. And that was where two, two consultants and two SHOs, uh, you can just imagine a, it's now a regional centre with God knows uh, 15, 20 cardiologists and mm. scores of trainees. Uh, in those days, there were just two, and that's, you, you did the, you know, you you looked after the population as best you could. Mm. And again, the consultants used to be quite busy in doing angiograms and catheters, and um, you know, as uh, the two SHOs, you had to pick up all the other stuff. So I spent nine months uh, learning uh, a lot of cardiology and doing a fair number of angiograms as an SHO, putting about 70-odd pacemakers as an SHO. So when I came back, <sighs> having done Blackpool after nine months, I remember attending a job at, at Hammersmith, and uh, there was incredulity. How, you know, you've done 70 pacemakers? That's not possible. <laughs> uh, because, uh, you know, our registrar doesn't do 70 pacemakers here in a year. So, you know, <laughs> the world was different to what it was out in the sticks, to what it was in the centres. And even then, it wasn't appreciated, just like now. Uh, yeah, very yeah. easy to be working in centres in your own little uh, narrow area and be oblivious to what's happening out in the districts. So uh, those are the kind of, you know, uh, it shaped my views that if I ever did become a consultant, that I would like to maintain a very strong hold uh, in a population who I could look after uh, rather than be stuck in a centre uh, doing fairly narrow things. Mm, yeah, well, that, that, that really resonates with me quite a bit because I remember when I qualified um, in 2009, I made the decision quite contrary to what a lot of other imperial medical students were doing at the time, which is staying in Northwest Thames or or somewhere around London. I actually went out and I went to to Essex to to go work in a, a, a DGH, and that's kind of where I found my love of medicine again. I think um, because you were put in the deep end. I mean, nowhere near to your experiences uh, 
30 years ago. But that experience there and also working in um, a rural environment in a GP practice in Truro down in Cornwall, that gave me a, a real like feel for that experience. I didn't think I was going to ask you this today, but I, I wonder, considering you know you, you have so many family members who work in the NHS uh, at varying uh, degrees of uh, stage of training, do, do, you, do you think there are pros and cons with how we now train medics today? Uh, considering you know your experience of hunting down the the best in in class and, and you know working towards a, a a goal that you you have to essentially build yourself rather than having a very structured training regime. There are good things uh, about uh, finding your way, uh, finding uh, the people you wanted to work with. Uh, um, having the opportunity of working with the best people, it didn't always work because you didn't always get the jobs you wanted. Mm. Um, and you moved around at leisure, you know, six monthly, one yearly, depending on when the jobs came up. Uh, but it did give you uh, that uh, edge, which you don't get now. I mean, I lament at the uh, training programs these days. The good thing, I guess, is that people go in and come out uh, with STs, uh, and uh, become consultants. So there's mm. some degree of security. Um, but it's been done at a cost. Mm. Uh, you know, a training program now involves you filling in your details online. You get assigned to go to a particular area and work in particular hospitals, and that's no choice of your own. Mm. And uh, you get to, to work with people who you may not want to work with and you may not enjoy the jobs that you're doing. But you have to go through this kind of sausage machine and come out, uh, you know, rather grey at the end. And I, 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 I really feel for some you know, really bright people within this sausage machine who have a potential to innovate, who have a potential mm. to contribute and are dumbed down by this process where they do not get that uh, leverage to be able to um, train with the people that they want to, explore things whilst they're training, go slightly off beast if mm. they have an idea, uh, they want to do a research project, they can't do it because you know their day is structured. Mm. Uh, in, in my days, if you had a research project, you know, you talk to your consultant, you sat around on the coffee table and you got on and you did it. And, mm. you know, I, that happened even actually uh, when I started at Hammersmith in 1990, you know, we had three registrars and Hammersmith was one of those places in those days which had uh, you know, worldwide reputation. The Royal Postgraduate Medical School, Hammersmith Hospital was the place to be in the world. And we had three registrars, and the registrars came to work with us every year. They were expected to do clinical medicine because that was part of their training. They were also expected and did research, and they mm. all produced high-level research by the time they left after just one year. And many of these guys went off uh, to become consultants uh, elsewhere. Now, that, that, you see, doesn't happen these days. It just doesn't happen. Uh, yeah. you know, there's a timeliness about uh, research. There's a timeliness about ideas. 
And if you do not nurture the idea that you might have waking up, having a cup of coffee, seeing a patient, that timeliness is gone. And that, you know, the wind out of your sail has gone. And that is what this current training program has lost. And I think the people who are in charge of these programs uh, perhaps do not see, see. Yeah, yeah. On the subject of research, let, let's talk about uh, your experience uh, in academia. Um, it sounds as if that you had the um, space to go and explore ideas throughout your training uh, when you saw fit. When was your sort of first experience in that element of medicine and and, uh, and what were the, the initial ideas that piqued your interest that's led to you now with this huge research project that we're going to talk about a bit later? So I went, uh, having done my registrar job, uh, I uh, was really lucky actually, it was a lucky break. Those were lucky breaks in those days. So I'm here because of lucky breaks in my career as are many people in my generation. Um, So I um, had done my year's registrar job, got my membership and uh, it was a done thing to go and do research and I was looking around where I could possibly do that. And uh, the chap I was working with at the time, David Thomas, who's a neurologist, uh, said, look, I think you really need to go and speak to Stan Peart, Chris Mathias, it's in Mary's, they're doing good work. And I think they, you will enjoy working with them. So I had no idea about the medical unit at St. Mary's. Uh, it was led by uh, Stanley Peart, who's uh, probably one of the finest physicians of his generation, incredible clinician, incredible researcher, and uh, ran the Wellcome Trust. And um, uh, so I uh, went and worked with him and the chap called Chris Mathias, who was working in autonomic function. Uh, Roger Bannister, Roger Bannister, who uh, was working on autonomic function at Queen Square, but was also at St. Mary's. And Peter Sever, who was actually, uh, who's still working with us now, uh, incredible uh, clinician and uh, clinical trialist. So I had the opportunity of actually working closely with these uh, 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 very, very accomplished people. And my initial work was uh, with no ideas of my own. I mean, you had no ideas. Uh, you just joined a unit and you see mm. what they're doing and they said, well, I think you should try to look at this. So my initial work was actually on the control of circula- of the circulation by the nervous system. So I was working on the autonomic nervous system. I was working on how hypertension was, uh, uh, renal hypertension was not uh, driven uh, just by renal artery stenosis, uh, but was driven by the brain. I worked on paraplegic patients. I worked on tetraplegic patients. Um, I worked on patients with brachial plexus injury because these were natural accidents which have led to injuries where you could explore the circulation um, mm. and see how the circulation was controlled by the brain, by the spine, and in the periphery. So that that was kind of my research degree. And then towards the end of that, I felt, well, oh, I think I think I would enjoy that for the rest of my career, but I had to grow up like everybody else. I had to finish my research right up and go on and do uh, other things. 
So I then worked with uh, uh, the cardiovascular unit at St. Mary's with Rodney Fowle, uh, learned uh, uh, to work in cardiovascular medicine, started my training program with him on cardiovascular medicine. Uh, he was a great patron, very good cardiologist. Again, he's still working with us. Uh, very, very sound, uh, accomplished cardiologist. And uh, so I did that. And then uh, another break came up. And that was my job at Hammersmith. Mm, mm. I, um, I I came across this quote from someone the other day. Because um, just as you're talking about breaks there and, and luck, it seems that the harder you work, the luckier you get. Would you agree with that? I think, uh, yeah, I think, you know, if you work hard, I, that's what I always found. If you put the hours in, you your work gets appreciated. You may not always mm. be successful. You may not mm. you may not publish where you want to publish. You may not uh, discover what you might want to discover. You may not see your name on neon lights, but if you just work hard and you have the right intent, then people at all walks of life appreciate that. And I think in that walk of appreciation Doors open up. People make mm. it possible for you to walk through open doors, yeah. and uh, I think that's a very important thing. You know, in, in medicine in general, being honest, uh, having that integrity, and putting an incredible amount of hard work in for no for no expected gain. Uh, yeah. Which is this is what the career this is what our careers are about, actually, as physicians and surgeons in medicine. And that's how medicine has evolved over centuries. Yeah. Uh, and that mindset uh, is sometimes difficult to understand. Um, you know, um, uh, in, in the modern day environment, I find kind of graduates moving out of medicine uh, into uh, other walks of life where they think that maybe they'd be better rewarded, uh, both in terms of their uh, uh, success in uh, uh, personal achievements or you know financial rewards, uh, but I think few few careers really meet that deep satisfaction you get uh, from medicine. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, I I agree. Um, I want to frame our conversation now about the the work, the huge project that you're doing at the moment, and just to sort of anchor the listener to frame our conversation. I want to give some insight into, into folks listening about cardiometabolic risk triggers, if you like, uh, that might lead to someone having pathology. So uh, obesity, particular central obesity, um, the ratio of fats, uh, perhaps even lipoprotein abnormality. So that's how we, we transport different molecules, inflammation, raised CRP or other acute phase reactants. Um, blood pressure, which is a whole other topic in itself, and, and metabolic disturbances, so insulin resistance, or even how we might transport glucose in the body. Um, what I guess we want to be talking about is the reasons why there is a predisposition to some, if not all of those different factors, particularly amongst the South Asian population, with a heavier focus on the genetic predisposition that I gather you've had most experience in. Does that, does that sound... Uh, like a, a nice starting point for you? Yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> that takes me back to when I moved across from uh, St. Mary's to kind of uh, Hammersmith and the Ealing. So my 
posts which I still occupy at the moment was a joint position at the Royal Postgraduate Medical School, now Imperial College, uh, and Ealing Hospital. And Ealing, as you know, is uh, in West London, serving population uh, in West London, of which 30% are South Asians. So I sort of started my consultant job there with, uh, with no cardiovascular kind of unit. Uh, and uh, that's what I came across. I came across patients uh, who were young. I came across patients who uh, uh, had central obesity, uh, had uh, high blood pressure levels, um, had a lot of diabetes, patients who had high abnormal lipids, principally high triglycerides, low HDL levels, perhaps cholesterol not so high, and had incredible uh, premature severe heart disease. So it became obvious to me that if um, I was going to stay in this position for long enough, that mm -hmm. one of the things that I'm, I had to do was actually to, re, to uh, reorientate myself uh, a, to be able to looking after these people clinically, and mm. secondly, to be able to understand um, this disease. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, in the nineteen nineties, um, we started uh, in earnest uh, working on on this area. Was this a well recognised phenomena back then in the nineties? Uh, had had we known about this disparity, or is this a relatively new recognition? It was becoming known in 1990. So uh, in 1990, Paul McKeague, Mike Marmot had published a paper in the Lancet, 1991, drawing attention to the fact that Asians had uh, uh, premature severe coronary disease, high rates uh, of disease, and there was this emergence of this syndrome. Uh, of insulin resistance um, and uh, so they uh, had drawn attention to it and that was timely uh, because I was in the thick of it uh, mm. and so it was a very natural thing for me to pick this up uh, and to uh, develop uh, this research program mm. and uh, so you know um, uh, uh, I was the only cardiologist. I had no team on the one hand, so I was had this think, very great challenge uh, with myself, half a secretary, half a technician, to build a clinical service, which took me about uh, 10 years to build. Wow. And uh, that was actually building a clinical service from scratch. In those days, money was tight, uh, really tight, uh, and so much of uh, the building of this unit was through gathering up funds from the communities, uh, grants, going to government with a begging bowl, uh, and just getting money for where you could, uh, buying furniture, buying machines, hiring on staff, writing mm. grants. And then parallel to that was actually starting a research program. Now, if clinical work was difficult to get off the ground because there were no resources and you just had to do everything yourself, you can just imagine that uh, if you wanted to start a research program, that that also had its challenges. Uh, yeah. Firstly, it was a new area. Secondly, you had to structure it. So um, uh, I, uh, you know, when I started, I uh, had a uh, registrar at the time, 
a chap called John Chambers, who again still works with me. And he and I sat down and said, well, look, you know, this is a great thing to do. And what we needed to construct was a proper long-term study to be able to understand um, this kind of disease. Um, because, you know, uh, even now, the existing studies of uh, diseases among South Asians uh, are really small-scale, retrospective study designs. They look at a very narrow range of risk factors, and it doesn't allow you to understand the contribution of exposures, whether they're environmental or genetic, uh, in, in a kind of proper way. So we put together a study at that time called the lollipop study. Okay, the lollipop study uh, was named simply because between us, we had nothing and couldn't even afford a lollipop at the time. Uh, so that's what it was. The lollipop had no money, but we had big ambitions. Uh -huh. And we had ideas to cultivate a long-term population study. And uh, so we uh, put together a framework. We got together with about 50 of GPs locally, and we said, look, we all we are all in this together. You have your patients. We have a patient we see in the hospital. Let's just put a team together and let's put together a long-term cohort. Uh, and uh, we were lucky because, you know, we were busy delivering a clinical service for their patients. They appreciated that. And they also saw the merit in putting mm. uh, together a study and being part of a team, uh, uh, which could perhaps look towards answering these questions. So when it got a bit serious after a couple of years, uh, Lollipop uh, became a bit of a joke because, um, you know, it wasn't the done thing to be doing a serious study with a rather odd acronym. So we had to go back and revisit this. So what could we call it? So we then called it the London Life Sciences Population Study. Okay, so that translates into the lollipop study. So the lollipop study is now 32,000 people, which we put together. It is coming to a 15-year follow-up. Uh, it is uh, uh, the world's largest prospective population study of South Asians. Uh, who've been followed up for 15 years for disease outcomes and in whom we have uh, detailed phenotypic data, detailed biological data, stored samples for genetic analysis. So that was how it came together. And now, uh, obviously, with uh, the success that Lollipop study has enjoyed over the years, it has become, uh, you know, world-famed because it is the only population, uh, prospective population cohort with large biological data uh, amongst Asians. And uh, yeah, but that was the, uh, that was how it started. Lollipop started with no resource, no money. Two yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just want to go back a second because I think it's easy for us today to take for granted just how difficult that must have been back in the day. You, you found a disparity with a, a population in, in different types of disease. You have to then engage entrepreneurial skills and go and sell this for research funding. 
you know, go and, and, and beg, borrow from the government. You also have to, I mean, you come up with the the funky acronym, which is now all the all the fashion, like all the big studies have funky acronyms now. And so you're a first mover in that as well. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, uh, it's, it's easy for us to not really appreciate just how much time this has taken to get to this level. We just look at the outcome rather than, you know, this is something that you started well over a few decades ago. Yes, it was a, it, it's a journey. Mm. <laughs> it's a journey which uh, has occupied decades. Um, you know, everything from what you say, it's fine having an idea, fine having ambitions, uh, but then to translate it into practice. So, you know, we walked around uh, Ealing Southall, we went to see the GPs, we sat with them, we sold them our vision, Uh, You know, the National Service Framework was coming into line 15 years ago. The government was telling GPs, well, you know, guys, uh, here's a National Service Framework for cardiology. We expect you to do da-da-da, like cholesterol, blood pressure for every patient. And we'll give you £2,000, £2,500 to do that. So Mm -hmm. we persuaded our local GPs that you don't need to do that. We will do it all together. So why don't you put your two and a half thousand pounds into the melting pot? And we will also put uh, money in from the hospital. Let's make it a bigger pot and let's put the whole population together and let's do it in a systematic manner. So, you know, that took, uh, you know, a couple of years to get around the people and then put the study together. And then obviously you have to do the work and you have to recruit people, uh, mm, train people. Yeah. Uh, you have to have the systems in place to be able to see large numbers of people. You then need to uh, you know, uh, get uh, the resources together to collect samples, uh, to store samples. And um, so Lollipop, when it started, uh, you know, obviously you collect the biological data, you collect samples. Samples have to be stored in minus 70 freezers. Uh, so, you know, minus 70, I haven't seen a minus 70 freezer ever in my life. So we ordered one because that's where the samples needed to be stored. And uh, it came through the hospital and it needed to be plugged in. So there was no space. So we plugged it in the corridor. And uh, so a big hospital corridor, the minus 70 freezer in our department. Uh, it was fine. Then one became two, two became four. So we then you know, made a small room to put six minus 70 freezers in. And then it got to 10. And, uh, you know, gradually the study expanded. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, we <laughs> talking, just talking about that, uh, when it did get to about 10 freezers, uh, I got a visit from the chief executive at the time. <laughs> Can you just explain to me uh, what these freezers are doing and how is it helping patient care? And, uh, you know, uh, we just need to discuss a few things, including risk of having these freezers in the corridors with patients walking around. So uh, we had a visit by the fire safety team who who basically decided in their wisdom that they needed to either put a... Uh, a very high-powered uh, uh, electrical supply to stop the hospital system going down in that area part of the hospital, uh, or had to move the freezers out. And uh, so, you know, 
um, around 15 odd years ago, I went to the bank manager and said, look, you know, we are in this position, hospitals are very supportive, but 10 is going to become 20. And <laughs> if uh, we do this, uh, it's not going to work long time. So I need to buy a warehouse to put these freezers. So um, I had identified a warehouse where I think we could have put these freezers. So he said, how much is it? I said, it's a million pounds. Uh, and he said, how much money do you need? I said, I need a million pounds. <laughs> and, uh, he said, how much money do you have? I said, I have no money. Uh, but I need a million pounds to buy this freezer, a uh, freezer warehouse. Uh, so he looked at me with a degree of uh, uh, kind of uh, as if I was coming from a madhouse. But as we talked, he bought into the story. And by the time we finished, he said, I didn't need a million pounds. I needed 1.2 million pounds because there were going to be additional <laughs> costs. And uh, that we would be prepared in those days to give me 1.2 million pounds. Uh, and uh, because I had no money, he would give me a 1.2 million pound loan at 1% interest. Oh, my word. Okay, so I bought this warehouse in Hanger Lane at 1.2 million pounds of 1% interest which we have which is now a biorepository which is now filled with uh, 70 minus 80 freezers and over <laughs> 5 million samples uh, we're still paying off some loan and still at one percent yeah you know, it's, uh, it, it, these are kind of the, 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 it, your research takes you through these journeys so you you you, you come across these hurdles, you have to find solutions. And, uh, you know, the, nowadays we can go to grant giving bodies. We're really lucky to be supported by the Wellcome Trust. Mm. In those days, uh, when you don't have a track record, you don't have publications, all you have is a vision. You have very limited opportunities to actually put a framework together to create um, something which you think may be worthwhile downstream. And so, you know, I used to do private practice in those days and put 10, 15 years of my private practice money directly into the research to make it happen. And to mm. make it happen, that's what it took in those days. Um, so it, it was, it was, you know, we, it needs a team. It, it needed our patients, local population to buy in. It needed the GPs to buy in. It needed a hospital management in those days to buy in. It needed Lloyd's Bank manager to buy in. And, you know, that's how it came together. That's amazing. That I mean, your ability to sell the vision, it just sounds phenomenal. <laughs> I mean, that is the, the, the true sort of art of of salesmanship and entrepreneurship right there. For some, that's, that's incredible. I think people used to get, once you tell them why you're doing it and mm. what purpose, uh, you know, I was lucky, really lucky to having you know, a huge amount of support from my consultant colleagues at uh, Hammersmith, at Imperial, uh, at uh, Ealing, uh, and you know, who were understanding of the need for this to happen and we're very supportive mm. and so it takes a big team it takes uh, a lot of support from uh, colleagues amazing so given 
you know, we understand the disparity. Uh, we, we can recognize it from your current lens uh, and your, your current experience of the research and, and all the data you've collected. What are the main reasons for the disparities that we see thus far? I know this is still an open question that we're trying to answer, but from from your perspective, what what are the main reasons that you can you can tell us about? Yeah, okay. So you know, um, you'd like to think that after thirty years uh, of putting this population together, we would have answers. <laughs> and uh, as we were you know discussing very briefly on the phone yesterday, I come across this after thirty years. Uh, still asking the same questions that I was asking 30 years ago. So what is the problem? The problem is that South Asians worldwide account for 1.8 billion people. Okay, it's around a quarter of the world's population. And obviously, uh, it is the largest ethnic minority group uh, in the UK. And there's no question that this population, this quarter of the world's population, is at particularly high risk of number of diseases. Um, and the data which has been gathered up in the US, from Europe, this country, the UK, has shown that uh, the South Asian community has twofold increased risk of coronary artery disease and threefold increased risk of uh, type 2 diabetes. Mm. Now, uh, this excess of these uh, uh, diseases, excess risk, is not explained by traditional risk factors as we know them. It's not explained simply by smoking, by cholesterol, by blood pressure, uh, by diet, by physical exercise even when you factor all these risk factors in and you adjust for them, you still have around 2% excess risk of coronary artery disease and 3%, a threefold risk of diabetes in this population. So the reasons why there's the excess risk are not understood. And this gap, this gap of knowledge is probably the single most important obstacle in tackling this epidemic of cardiometabolic uh, uh, diseases and other emerging diseases uh, in this population. So, you know, we focused, of course, on coronary artery cardiovascular disease and then diabetes. You've talked about obesity and uh, hypertension. Uh, obesity is a big problem uh, to a point where the uh, World Health Organization has had to adjust uh, its criteria for obesity amongst Asians, both for BMI and for waist circumference. Uh, and then, of course, there are the emerging diseases, prevalence of uh, Alzheimer's disease and cognitive decline, uh, which you know is a relatively new disease, as we think. It's projected to increase by 100% in the UK, uh, uh, by 2040, but in South Asians, by 300%. And even now, uh, South Asians who come in diagnosed with dementia uh, uh, tend to be diagnosed four years early uh, and have lower scores when they're diagnosed. So that's one condition, which is uh, an important condition to, mm. to understand and answer. Uh, then there are you know, uh, associated conditions um, uh, like uh, depression. 
so uh, uh, you know, South Asians suffer uh, from uh, disproportionately from uh, uh, depression. So the, the again around a twofold excess based on all published evidence among South Asians compared to Europeans, and again the determinants of depression in this population are not known. Uh, you you know, swing the clock back uh, on, on forwards to, to 2020, 2021, uh, we have the emergence of uh, long COVID, COVID. Mm-hmm. And it's abundantly clear that South Asians have a high risk of uh, COVID. Uh, and uh, similarly for long COVID, uh, this is not explained by socioeconomic factors, by crowding alone, by polybus index, or by composite baseline measures of health. So, you know, you've got this number of diseases, cardiometabolic diseases, you've got uh, dementia, Alzheimer's disease, you've got major depressive disorders, you've got emerging diseases like long COVID. And this population is exposed at around two to threefold risk of these diseases. And not explained by risk mm. factors as we understand them. So there's got to be a, a, a there's got to be a move away from the traditional ways in which we kind of explore these diseases to try to understand this 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 gap. Now, of course, you know when we talk about traditional approaches, we also have to look at the, the kind of limitations that uh, we have had in the studies amongst in Asians to date. And I was mm-hmm. telling you that existing studies uh, of South Asians uh, uh, have relied on small sample size. They've been mm-hmm. retrospective. They've usually looked at a very narrow range of uh, risk factors with very limited ability to account for the proportion of the risk. Uh, uh, so you don't get accurate estimates of uh, disease associations. And you need large sample size. You need uh, longitudinal studies. You need representation of men and women. You need uh, uh, the population to be representative of South Asians in general. For for instance, you know, UK Biobank is a country's hugely successful longitudinal study. You know, the, one of the best studies ever to come out of the UK, and it recruited. Uh, uh, Asians, 500,000 people recruited. It recruited uh, within the 500,000 people, uh, 8,000 Asians. So mm. that, that was the uh, that was the kind of a uh, number of South Asians who participated in the study, and uh, within this uh, kind of framework, uh, you know, we had about 240 Bangladeshis. So oh, wow. you, you can't you can't uh, you can't understand these big diseases uh, with yeah. just 8,000 people and where, you know, uh, the, the, the the representation of people from India, Pakistan, Bangladesh is, uh, is disproportionate. Mm. Um, so, you know, having said that, you know, 8,000 is still a fantastically good number. And it is yielding important contributions. Uh, so, uh, 
uh, that uh, led us uh, to uh, propose uh, to the Wellcome Trust that, look, uh, there were 8,000 people. South Asians are not well represented in long-term, uh, uh, longitudinal population studies. And what we needed to create was to build on the lollipop program uh, of mm -hmm. 32,000 people and uh, extend that population base uh, to uh, 100,000 people, say, in the UK and 100,000 people in South Asia, who we can then follow up uh, longitudinally uh, to investigate the contribution of not just the genetic uh, determinants, but also of the different exposures that uh, Asians might have in this country to what they would have in uh, South Asia. So we put together this uh, application to the Wellcome Trust and we were very fortunate to got funded about uh, two and a half years ago. Bad, bad. Uh, and so this then transforms from the lollipop study into the South Asia Biobank study. So South Asia Biobank is uh, basically the kind of uh, vision of creating uh, around about 200,000 people, 100,000 in this country and 200,000 in, the, in, the, in, in South Asia. It seems to me that, you know, you're not convinced entirely by the environmental argument, which obviously has some bearing on the disparity between South Asians and Caucasian counterparts with regards to their, their risk uh, profiles for a suite of different diseases. Um, what do, do, you, do you think it's pointing more towards genetic variation in terms of the grandeur effect versus environment or do you think it's a blend of both considering we are you know talking about something where we have imperfect information about the uh the, the reasons as to why so i that's it, very important uh, i think it, it has to be a blend of both uh so uh, you know it's as i said these diseases amongst the excess of these diseases are not explained amongst asians now that it is partly due to the fact that uh, the environmental exposures have not been captured properly. No one's really looked mm. properly in a longitudinal manner at the contribution of diet. There's no longitudinal study of diet and South Asians and these diseases, whether it's heart disease or diabetes. Similarly, there's no uh, good data on physical activity. Uh, and its contribution to these diseases and, of course, obesity among South Asians. Um, and then uh, when you sort of go on to other environmental exposures, uh, you know, it's possible that they've been captured but not been captured accurately. So there may well be a very strong contribution of the environment. I think um, the case we're making is that, look, we just need to do these things properly uh, mm. and accurately and have a large sample size to assess their contribution. And then, of course, there is a genetic mm. component as well. And that cannot be ignored because the makeup of South Asians uh, in terms of genetics is different. And, uh, you know, we, we did publish uh, a paper in Nature uh, a few years ago, three or four years ago, where we demonstrated uh, that uh, obesity, obesity in South Asians, which, you know, you could argue is driven by unhealthy eating and physical inactivity, 
uh, is responsible for 200 uh, differential methylation markers. Uh, mm. So methylation at 200 loci is different in Asians compared to Europeans, and it's driven by obesity. And of those 200 methylation markers, five are responsible, we think, for 30% of diabetes in Asians. So you could trace yourself back and say, look, actually, deal with it at source, deal with it at diet, mm -hmm. deal with it at environment. You can prevent obesity, and you may actually, at the other end, uh, be able to reduce the burden of diabetes. So I think the answer to your question is it's very likely that there's going to be a blend of environmental and uh, genomic exposures to this. And what mm -hmm. we need, which is a brainchild of South Asia Biobank, is now to put together this 200,000 cohort. So, you know, your fantastic uh, podcast viewers need to engage with us uh, on South Asia Biobank uh, and uh, be part of research uh, and contribute to this uh, journey by uh, coming and having a one-hour assessment uh, of uh, their health, uh, for us to be able to capture some of their data, an opportunity to follow them up for uh, years to come in terms of their health, and then to be able to understand, you know, which direction are these exposures and the genetic variation taking us. Now, you know, the brainchild of South Asia Biobank is actually that we are in a position now, if we get this cohort together, of actually following up longitudinally multiple diseases at the same time. So cardiovascular disease, diabetes, hypertension, obesity, dementia, major depressive disorders, mm. long COVID. We can follow up the cohort for all these diseases and the, then to be able to take a step back and say, okay, we are collecting good data in terms of the phenotypes. And now let's now open up another investigation line. We will sequence their genomes. We will... Mm. We will we will look at all the methylation markers. We will do an epigenome-wide screening. We will look at their transcriptome. We will look at their proteome. We will look at their metabolome. So then you actually have hard outcomes of these diseases. And you say, well, for, for argument's sake, let's say you've got you know, 5,000 cases with coronary artery disease and 5,000 controls which have emerged from this cohort. You can then say, Okay, well, if we actually adopt a multi-omics approach to investigation of these diseases where you're not just capturing the genetic variation, but you're capturing the downstream biological pathways. So you're not necessarily just looking at an association of one gene or, uh, you know, uh, just genetic variation in general, but you're actually looking at the consequences of that variation in terms of how that translates into downstream biological pathways, you can then begin to get an insight into the underlying causes of mm. why 5,000 people may have wandered down and had heart attacks and why the other 5,000 may have been protected from heart attacks. So this is a new field of medicine where you are actually looking at uh, you know, uh, a multi-omics approach uh, backed up uh, with this uh, kind of a uh, you know large population sample with different exposures, and the, uh, the the bioinformatics in this day and age allows us 
to be able to bring these resources together, to be able to answer these fundamental questions, which actually would not even have been possible, uh, you know, three, five years ago. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of um, collecting the data properly, uh, as someone who's gone through the process, I've uh, I've done well well-man checks with um with booper and with nuffield and i would say this is probably the most comprehensive assessment i've ever had and it was for free uh for the reset yeah it was amazing i mean like you know the questionnaire is really detailed the nursing staff were fantastic the fact you know you're taking bloods i got my results i got my assessment i got my risk profile there's so much stuff that i can do using that data in the present but also the fact that I'm also contributing to this massive research project that could help save lives in the future and understand the disparities in the diseases. And, and it's not just about cardiometabolic problems, you know, it's a whole suite of uh, different issues as you've eloquently explained. It's amazing. It's, a, it's, it's an incredible project and, uh, uh, and that's why I'm so passionate about it. And that's why I wanted to talk about it on the podcast today. Yeah, so I, I think, you know, again, Rupi, when we put the construct of the study together, um, we were funded by the Wellcome Trust, an incredibly generous contribution to, in order to be able to get this study off the, off the ground. Uh, and uh, we weren't funded to generate reports for patients. Uh, so we felt that there were, you know, if thousands of people, tens of thousands of people are going to participate, give up their one hour of time and mm. give uh, their kind of samples for analysis, there had to be something for them. They, 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 yeah. they, it was an obligation at a clinical level to be able to give them ownership of their data to allow them to make some assessment of their health and allow them to make improvements in their health where they're, they're needed. So um, uh, this was a kind of tag on, uh, if you like, oh, in wow. terms of uh, what we were doing to the, the, the main part of the study. And so we are now making every single piece of data that we have at hand available through the kind of report that you've seen uh, to every uh, participant. And that means that the person has access to, you know, the, the blood, blood pressure levels, body fat, body composition, BMI, uh, uh, you know, waist hip ratios, ECGs, which are reported, lung function, uh, retinal photography, cholesterol, blood pressure. And you're quite right. If you go and have these assessments with, uh, you know, uh, uh, commercial organizations like Bupa, you don't get that depth of report. It's just not there. And uh, we, we're doing it free uh, because, you know, we have an obligation to the people who uh, come and participate in this research. So it's absolutely free of cost. And uh, we're doing it free also because we've had community engagement uh, to, mm. you know, uh, you talked about, you know, uh, how this comes together. And I gave you the example of the freezers. Well, you know, we were about to embark on the study and COVID hits us. And we were planning to mm. do the study at Imperial College, at London Northwest Hospitals and various other hospitals. And they became no-go territories because of COVID restrictions. Mm. So we had to move the research out into the community. 
So I uh, approached uh, uh, the Sings of Agurdwara in Southall and said, look, you've got this premises, not, uh, 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 you know, it has a potential of being used for service to humanity. And, you know, I tell you, it uh, took uh, uh, Hermit, who's the General Secretary of the Gurdwara, and his committee members uh, with Mr. Summer no longer than a couple of meetings to decide that that's what they're going to do. So they leased out the building for five years to Imperial College at £100 rent per year. Okay. <laughs> so that's a contribution of £1.5 million by the community to make a facility available onto the research program to make things happen. So to make things happen, it requires huge infrastructure. And uh, similarly, we've had, you know, people saying, well, you know, okay, I'll contribute to this report and I'll put some money in there. And that's how it happened. So we're looking at getting engagement from, you know, every single person who's listening to this program is of South Asian origin between the ages of 18 and 85. Just go onto the website, log in, come and spend a nice day with us, understand your health, and contribute to the health of future generations. Absolutely. I, I had no idea that the report uh, wasn't actually part of funding. That That's incredible. And the, the sacrifice and the the community element and what they've uh, donated is uh, amazing as well. I'm so glad we touched on that today because I, I wouldn't have had any idea about that. Um, I, I know we've got a hard stop in about five minutes. So I want to be respectful of your time. I just want to ask you two, uh, well, one thing is fairly big, so we can, we can shorten that. Uh, and then uh, another thing about just the future of what you imagine cardiology to look like when you're practicing in five or 10 years time, or perhaps some of your uh, colleagues. Um, there is a growing recognition of uh, a person's gut microbe having a role in the pathophysiology of disease, particularly metabolic risk. And, you know, we, we know uh, there's a lot of research going on this. It's naive of, of us to think that you can do absolutely everything. You know, we've talked about retinal photography and bloods and, and genotyping, transcriptomics, etc. Um, but do you think there is a role to collaborate with other organizations that uh, could help you further understand the impact of uh, other environmental triggers as well as the microbe in particular? And I'm thinking of you know research uh, uh, institutes like the Quadrum or APC in Cork or King's College perhaps? Indeed. So uh, the South Asia Biobank is planning to collect stool samples eventually. Okay. Oh, so brilliant. we are going to be looking at the gut, micro, micro, gut microbiome and uh, to be able to put that uh, as uh, you know, one of the approaches of trying to answer these diseases. Uh, it's a very, very interesting area. As you know, the initial work on the gut microbiome was done in uh, rats, where you have obese rats, uh, lean rats. You can take uh, the uh, 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 the microbiome from the lean rats, put it into the obese rats and vice versa. And after a period of time, the obese rats become lean, the lean rats become obese, uh, depending on uh, the change of microbiome. And this work has been uh, replicated at some level by Tim Spector and his colleagues, published a really nice paper in Nature Medicine uh, a couple of years ago. 
um, in the twin studies at King's College. And uh, we feel that for the Asian community and its prevalence of uh, diet of obesity, this is going to be uh, an important thing to pursue. We're not doing it just yet. So people listening in don't have to come in with a stool sample. Uh, so our initial, our initial strategy is just to collect blood and urine samples. Uh, but you're quite right. It's microbiome is a very important area uh, to factor in. And this is one of the sub-studies that we'll be picking up in due course. Brilliant. And um, just to close, you've you've been privy to a lot of this information uh, about the, the risk profiles affecting South Asians. I'm very interested to know if you have any daily or weekly activities that you do on a personal level that protect you and uh, promote cardiovascular health. Yeah, so Rupi, we are all in this together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, uh, yes, I, I mean, you know, I do try to make time for my workouts in the morning. It's the only time I can do that, get up in the morning and, uh, you know, walk across to our little gym at the back and uh, uh, do my stuff. And uh, you're a lot leaner than I am at the moment, so you're doing probably more <laughs> more of it than I am. Uh, but actually, it's it's a really really important thing. I think you know, mm. until such point in time as we are able to bridge this gap of knowledge, and we have personalised medicine either for the individual or for the population, it is paramount to be able to ensure that we deal with the risk factors optimally so that we can curb mm. the burden of disease. So, you know, good, healthy diet, crucial. Physical activity and maintaining optimal uh, weight, crucial. Treating blood pressure, treating cholesterol, uh, tr uh, preventing diabetes, treating diabetes, crucial. Stopping smoking, crucial. Keeping alcohol intake down, crucial. Plenty of good, fresh intake of vegetables and fruits crucial so until such point in time as we find this kind of personalized medicine approach the message i guess uh, you know is get the basics right deal with these important risk factors because there are some studies which say if you deal with these important risk factors you can drive risk down by two-thirds to 80 percent mm. for the population and, and so we yeah. will continue to pursue the reasons for the gap and, you know, we look forward to engagement from, you know, uh, people who are listening in today. Uh, but, you know, that should not prevent all of us to, to turn the screws on, move away from uh, the kind of uh, the thrust of just being healthy, but move away from being normal to actually optimally healthy. That's where it's at for Asians. If you've got a twofold excess risk of these diseases, you can't afford to be normal. Mm -hmm. You can't afford yeah. to have normal blood pressure. I mean, normal blood pressure of 140, 90 is mm -hmm. two times the risk of 110 over 70. So yeah. get ourselves into the optimal range for these risk factors to help drive the risk down. So that's why you know, that's kind of here and now approach as opposed to the futuristic yeah. approach. Brilliant. 
Prof, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure to chat to you. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed your first podcast experience. And uh, perhaps in the future, I can uh, I can donate my microbial samples as well when you start collecting those as part of the biobank. I'd be more than happy to come back again. Yeah, it won't be difficult. You could even post it to us. <laughs> Fab. <laughs> That's great. That's great. I really hope you enjoyed that podcast episode. Please do go check out sabiobank.org. All the links to everything that we chatted about today are on the podcast show notes at thedoctorskitchen.com. Make sure you sign up for the newsletter where I share something to eat, read, and listen to every single week to inspire you to live a healthier, happier life in mind and body. I really hope you enjoyed the episode and I will see you here next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.